Well, hello, everybody. I'm Connor. And I am Elle. And welcome back to the Interloper Podcast. Today, we wanted to introduce This Land is Your Land, which we did right after This Land is My Land. Which is... (laughs) (laughs) Connor and I are both in the midst of a lot of transition. Connor is is moving in a couple days, and I am getting ready to go on this uh, train ride, red artist residency thing. Um, and so we're a little brain fried, but we are here to talk about here. this. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so essentially, if this is the first time you've ever joined us on a podcast, uh, then you might not be familiar with our work. If you've, you've done this before, then you know that what we do is we do these curated exhibitions and then we kind of like do events and conversations around them. And then we do podcast conversations with the topic of the curated conversation. And so the one we're going to talk about today is this land is your land, which came right after this land is my land. Um, and the reason we decided to kind of make them related, but also different is it's such a big topic. There's so many different interweaving ideas. Like in this land is my land. We were talking about boundaries and borders and ownerships and who has the right to own own land, who has the right to own anything. And then we kind of switch into this land is your land. We're kind of opening up that conversation more. And normally we would have this conversation at the beginning of the opening of the exhibitions, but we decided this time to kind of round out all the conversations, the events and exhibitions with just kind of a a recap with Connor and I to talk about the topic and how they kind of intertwine together. So Connor, you want to talk about just the, the brass tacks of uh, the artists and what they did? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So we had two artists, the first, Elisheba Johnson. She showed on our text board, and her piece was called... Non-committal. Yeah, so you can look at the work by Elisheba Johnson, which was on our text board, our original space for Interloper. But you can also see the work by Deja Milani. It's called Pathways. Which was at our new space that we did at a salon, and it was called Seattle Salon. And her work has to do with hair, and we were really excited about having her, her work be in a salon. Right, which we'll talk about more. Okay, so... I'm going to read the uh, curatorial statement. This land is your land examines what is possible when there are boundaries without borders. In noncommittal, Elisheba Johnson questions the mutuality of her connection with her hometown of Seattle, cleverly highlighting the relational nature of belonging and freedom. In Pathways, Deja Milani traces her experience of relationship and community through the entwining of the braid. The specific location of Milani's exhibition at Seattle Salon grounds her work in her intention to challenge the world's interaction with black hair. This pairing of two soul exhibitions illuminates how our freedom is not merely dependent on one another, but rather deeply interwoven together. Well, so when we think about This Land is Your Land, I was actually reading a book the other day, which I'm sure you're going to love, Elle, but it was all about wizards and witches. Mm-hmm. I do and, love witches. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's actually by Ursula K. Le Guin, and it's the Tales of Earthsea, which some of you may know if you're listening. But there is a story which is all about how this like big wizard school, kind of like Hogwarts from Harry Potter world, but this is called the School on Roke, was like started by women, mm-hmm. and like one man who came and joined them, and they wanted to start like creating a a place where like wizards could come and learn and Mm -hmm. learn how to do wizardry in a good way and then eventually over time as the school started to grow and grow they added more and more wizards and witches but the mages the male wizards started to come in and started to take over Mm -hmm. what they thought the school was meant to be like they were like no men are the only ones who can do real magic Mm -hmm. and the women were like no what are you talking about we've been here doing we've been doing this all this time we've been doing this for years 
But the men are like, no, actually all the power is in men because they can be celibate and they don't have to worry about bearing children. Hmm. And that's where the woman's power is. And as we know in like later books, we know that the men are the only ones who run the school now. Even though in the beginning there were women that both started and were like a big integral part of the system. It makes me think a lot about like Hollywood embroidery guilds pretty much every major artistic and creative craft so it's like hollywood was started by women like the movie industry did you know that no wow yeah, yeah. like well um, not necessarily started by but a lot of in the beginning women were directors and, and really the ironic part is this always changes when prestige comes to it so before there was money to mm. be made it was like a creative outlet for women and that's who started movies and then when there started to become money and banks started backing. Actually, what happened when banks started backing these films, they were like, well, we're not going to back women. And so they started backing men to do it. And it became and now it's like predominantly and dominantly a male industry. Wow. But it was started as like the creative output of women. Yeah. yeah and I think that's what you were thinking about with This Land is Your Land, right? That was one of the things that you were thinking about is how do we open the doors up and become more inclusive and welcoming? But then at the same time, it then creates... The people that were originally in power, they were welcome back to the table and they end up taking over again or someone else takes over. Is this I'm I'm like paraphrasing yeah. you now, but to kind of like simplify it down, this is an idea when I was in my the first grad school program that I went to, this was an idea that I was like obsessed with and I wrote a lot about. Um, and I'm just I'm really interested in this idea of community and relationship. And it's almost this like ideal utopian idea. And we all know that utopias like don't exist, right? And so this idea that like if we could just love each other, then everything would be fine. And I think for the first year, I was like really thinking like this is the answer. If we can love each other, if we can see each other, if we stop trying to own things, if we don't have borders, if we realize like there's no reason like me being a United States citizen that gives me access to all of these things, there's nothing that I did to deserve that to own that. And so why do we have that? Um, and then like, I went through this, that's something that I really want in life. But then I also thought a lot about, but that's just not the reality that we live in. And the reality that we live in is if you freely give, there will always be someone there to freely take. And so how do you create a society where everyone can freely give without having to be fearful that it's going to be taken from you. And this idea of like, if you work really, really hard to get in the room, how do you leave the door open so others can come in without others pushing you back out again? And so this land is my land really kind of explored that idea of what does it mean to own? Who has the right to own? Who's in charge? What are these hierarchies? Where are these boundaries and these borders? And now kind of moving more into okay, but like realistically, we have to talk about power and we have to talk about how do you have, we use the words permeable boundaries a lot. Like how do we have boundaries and, um, but also make them permeable so people can like kind of come in. Yeah. And I think Elizabeth Johnson's work, you, you got to speak with her mm-hmm. on one of our podcasts, but I think about her work, especially when we're talking about this, like her, her work, non-committal. what she said was, I am in a situationship with my hometown. I just imagine, especially knowing her and her work with Wanawari, that there's a little bit of this, like, her hometown of Seattle, in particular Central District, has become hospitable, if you will, to anybody to come into the neighborhood that has continued to push out her community. And this is kind of what, and I think that just, like, really represents what you've, what you're talking about, where 
And, and I wasn't a part of this interview, so I'm curious, like, what you think from your conversation with her. Here's an example. I mean, this is like a really abstract, big idea that it's hard for me to put words to. But essentially, like, again, to be a little repetitive, like my artist statement, um, which artists, you know, write statements, explain all of their breadth of the artwork. And it's hard and horrible and artists hate doing it because they're like, I made artwork. Why should I talk about it? But I essentially like kept distilling it down because I was like, I don't even know that I believe anything I'm saying until there's just like one sentence. And the first half and that I know I'm like, this is what I know. And this is what I believe to be true. And this is what I'm making work about. And this fuels my curation and all the things I think about. And the first half of the um, sentences, I think a lot about love. And the second half is why we do and why we don't. And I used to just think a lot about love, why we do. But now I think it's really important to nuance and complicate that conversation to also think about why we don't. Um, that there are reasons why we don't love and that impacts us. And so in the conversation with um, Alicia, that was really interesting is as you and maybe some of our listeners know, I am like pretty obsessed with talking about generational wealth right now. And one, because it impacts me directly and I'm seeing, you know, changes all around me and I live in the city that is like, uh, it, it, it was interesting talking to Alicia about it, both living in Seattle. And also the cool thing is she's the very first local artists that we've ever shown from Seattle, but also the text board, even though like she, she has connections to the central district, she actually lives in the neighborhood where the text board is. And so not only did we have our first Seattle artist, but we had a very hyper local artist because her artwork was actually in the neighborhood and her audience was literally where she lived. And so, but what became really interesting when I was talking to Alicia, and you'll hear this on the podcast is uh, when we talked about generational wealth, because I really, uh, talk a lot about how there should be an inheritance tax and how like we have an entire generation of people that are inheriting wealth from their parents. And so they're getting a one up from their peers and where they haven't necessarily done anything. And in, in some respects we talked about, like, I think when you know, you're not going to inherit anything, you are born with a hustle because there's nothing to fall back on. And that when you know, you're going to inherit something, there's almost less of an incentive to really make or create or do anything in the world. Right. And these are huge generalizations that don't always hold up. But we were kind of discussing this. But in contrast to what um, Alishma is doing in Wanawari, which is the organization she works with, is doing, where they're actually trying to hold down generational wealth within a Black family in the Black community. And I became very aware in that conversation, oh, this is a very different conversation for me as a white woman who's talking about how I'm not going to inherit anything. And I think that white people that inherit things should have to pay inheritance tax. But then I was like, wait a second, what is the difference? And that that's kind of the heart of this land is your land is that there's a difference thing where you have the majority of land owned by white people, wealthy white people. And in, and in generational wealth just keeps it in the hands of the same small group of wealthy white people is very different than saying, hey, actually, we want generational wealth and we want to decrease inheritance tax and all of these things for uh, black families or families who've actually had land taken away from them or they've like spent their whole lives trying to hold down properties. And some of these properties, like, you know, just thinking about like property taxes, one of the things that we talked about of like some of these houses that they were built for, t bought for $10,000 are now worth a million dollars and can't pay property taxes on them, you know? So it's pretty complicated. We went into all of that. So you can maybe cut this part out if you want. But um, it's just really interesting. But but that part is, I think, speaks to the complexity of this issue of I want to have this utopian idea that like everyone should have a shot and that the same small group of really wealthy white people in the United States shouldn't always have power and then pass that power down to their children. 
but I can't just make that blanket statement because there are other parents and grandparents and generations who have fought really, really hard to have a place in the room, to have a home, and they're trying to pass it down to their children. And if, if that right isn't protected, then those homes are going to be swept up and just given to those wealthy white people. It makes me think in the West Wing, there's like this whole, like, just like this small anecdote that's like, they can't get the black vote for a inheritance tax bill. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's the first generation of wealthy black people in this country. Mm-hmm. And they and everybody believes they're going to be rich one day in our country because mm-hmm. it's technically feasible. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you're saying is true. It's just way more complicated than just believing an inheritance tax should be on everybody. You know, when I was originally thinking about this topic years and years ago, um, thinking about love, you know, there's different, we've talked about different uh, societal and community ways that we talk about boundaries and countries, but also on personal level. So on a personal level, I want to freely love, but also I have trauma and the person that I want to freely love also has trauma. And so we can't just ignore the fact that we're scared, we're afraid that we take that we can hate, that we can hurt. And so how do we engage this idea? I talk a lot about the trajectory of not yet, of like where we want to go and who we want to be while still acknowledging that there's parameters that we're working with and how do we like lovingly work with those parameters. And so that's like on a, a personal level, but then like back to this conversation we're having also on an identity and a community level, we're talking about generational wealth within white community, wealthy white community, you know, working class white community, and then also wealthy black community, working class black community, and then all the other communities that we also have within our country. This idea of fighting to get in the door and then leaving the door open. And one of the things, you know, I've lived in a lot of different countries and I've lived amidst a lot of different communities, even with the United States. And I'm speaking in huge generalizations, but one of my critiques of white communities and families that I've been around and been a part of is this feeling often of isolation. And I do see that actually more within middle class and wealthier families and less within working class white families, um, because there is less of a need to depend on each other when you have money, I think. And that isolation I think can create this environment where it's like, Hey, I got in, let's shut the door behind me so that nobody else can take this away from me. And I think about this particularly, which will kind of come up in our conversation about hair is that like choosing to bring Dejan because I really, really loved her work on the braid because her hair is about the community and the development of community through passing down from grandmother to mother to child to daughter. And then also the place of the black hair salon and like how that is about community and really thinking about, wow, that is not what the white female hair salon is about. You know, it's so much about competition, about looking better, about your personal relationship with just your hairstylist. You're not talking to anyone else while you're in there. And so I wonder sometimes if that breeds this environment that you sometimes see within white women where they're like, I clawed my way into this room. I'm shutting the door behind me. So not only can women of color not get in, but also other white women can't get in because there's only one seat at this table. I have access to it and I'm not letting you in. Um, And if that's where a lot of this really awful behavior, I think, comes from hate using generalizations, but within white female community, I even feel like I can't even say white female community because it's so non community centered. I don't know. What do you think about what I'm saying? As far as the like hair salon goes, I I mean, it's both of those are beyond my experience personally. I mean, my Mm -hmm. experience of the hair salon was like going to great clips for like 
15 years. And then I finally went to the salon for the first time, like three months ago, kind of in preparation for this, for the show. Um, but even in that, like, even my relationship to my hair has never been like a community focused endeavor in any, any sort of way. Yeah. And it's something with girls, like even from a young age, we're braiding each other hair. It's like a very relational thing to even play mm-hmm. with each other's hair. But also I was thinking about when you said that, and we did talk about this in the conversation that it's something you've never thought about, but then on the flip side, as you get older and begin to fear losing your hair, it will be something that you will think obsessively about. <laughs> and so you will like join the ranks of women that have been thinking about this their entire lives. Um, not only with like yeah. beauty standards, but also like, so I don't know. What do you think about that? That like, it's something that you've never really thought about. And then, the second half of your life, you probably will think about it a ton. <laughs> I think uh, kind of what we had, we were talking in, in our other episode with Razia, mm-hmm. where it kind of feels like <laughs> where women are hustling all the time to do what they need to do to like make it in this world. I was just like hanging out and like letting my hair do whatever it was doing. And I mm-hmm. was fine. <laughs> like the amount of work and money I put into my hair was like nothing mm-hmm. comparatively. And that, that's actually ever since I went to the hairstylist for the first time, I'm trying to grow my hair out for the first time. I'm using product for the first time. Mm-hmm. I had no idea how much money women in particular spend on beauty products like that had never crossed my mind. Like the amount of money that's put in to make sure you are attractive mm-hmm. in a patriarchal society. Even that mm-hmm. is just like an edge that men have above women It's just like economically, like I'm not putting as much money into my body. And then I can use that money to buy a house or whatever, like a car or whatever. I've never thought about that because I've never not had to pay for it. But I do think about even beyond hair and how much money you... Because, yeah, I don't have to spend that much money to get my hair done. But it it changes the way I feel about myself because there's so much impetus put on hair in society, right? Um, But also, like, face creams. Like, this is a new thing that I'm, like, trying to figure out. Because as you get older as a woman, there's an expectation to not age. And so there's a huge difference between the like $5 over the counter face cream and then the $100 one. Like I always think about like you see wealthier people and Brock Oakley-Ells and I talked about this in one of the episodes that like you see really wealthy people or celebrities and they look amazing and you're like, how come they look better? And it's because they're spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, not only on plastic surgery, but also on like $20,000 face creams. That really does, it's different. Yeah. And I think even as you're talking like the privilege of just youth, like I'm even starting Mm -hmm. to like see bags forming under my eyes, which just happens over age two and like wrinkles Mm -hmm. that are like starting to form very, very small. But like I've been thinking I have a twin brother and like I've noticed he does much more for his looks now that Mm -hmm. he has like a fiance. Like she is like, you know, here's a good face cream that you should be using. Here's a good face wash. Like here's a compress for your eyes. It's like he has someone in his life that like they care for each other in that way. And like they know Mm -hmm. the importance of that. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to look older than my twin brother in 10 years if I don't do what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And like even just that idea, like everything. I mean, my whole life, everything's been a comparison. But like there will be a difference if I'm not doing the same things that he's doing, which is just on a societal level. It's like what you were just saying, like over yeah. time, the people that are able to afford the beauty products, especially like skincare and face face washes. It's like their faces will just look better in 20 years than the people who don't. Yeah. And, and, but that's also just to recognize that like our society values youth over anything. It values beauty standards, you know, of of youth and these like Western ideals of beauty. So just say like, I also feel some of the pressure of having to look beautiful and 
feel young being something that I'm, I'm not slash I'm going to be changing over time. And I have to confront that what aging looks like too in my body. Right. And I, I think like I brought this up in our last conversation of, I think the difference is, and so I was saying to you, like, you know, you've never had to think about your hair, but you will, I guarantee you, you will. Um, that is something that preoccupies a lot of <laughs> men's hair. Uh, men's thoughts is about their hair because it's connected in society with their virility and their power and their, you know, all these things. There, there's something more, and I, we might be getting off topic, but I think this is interesting. Uh, they, uh, there's something more that's like, I think within our collective psychology that we like almost don't know how to handle aging. And I think a huge part of it is, even though these are things that women have, these pressures have been put on women since the day they were born about how they look. It is something that's going to happen like midway through a man's life that he's not necessarily dealing with when he's younger. And I'm speaking specifically about white men, because if you're not a white man, you are thinking constantly about how you look because the world's talking about the color of your skin and how you're looking. Um, So it is like a very particular place of privilege for the young white man to live into. Um, And I always talk about like, I'm fascinated by like the midlife crisis of the white man around like 40, 50, 60 years old. And we talked in one of our other conversations that part of it is because they've been born into the world with yes, 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 yes. And then suddenly the world is saying, no, they don't have the life they thought they were going to have. And they have a full mental breakdown because they can't handle it. Whereas you don't see that as often in women because women are born with no. And so then their life becomes, how do I figure out how to get a yes when everyone's telling me no? And so in some ways there's a resiliency that women have that they're constantly learning like, Hey, there's so much pressure put on my body and the way that I look, but it also shifts. So the big thing for women and aging is you become irrelevant in a youth obsessed society. And so I think it's less about women caring about looking old and more about as you look old, no one listens to you anymore. Like I hear older women say all the time they feel invisible. And so the feeling of your impending death of your voice is coming. And so I think those like $250 face creams, it's not true because you want to look younger. It's because you're trying to stave off the death of your voice in society, which is pretty morbid. And I think, <laughs> yeah. I think for men that happens, but in a, a very different way, but there is a way to like to, to rest it back. And so I think and it, where I, well, this other thing that I was reading the other day, so I'm reading about the body and Bill Bryson's The Body book, and it's really fascinating if anybody should read it, but he basically just goes over the different systems in our body. And one of the things he talks about in the heartbeat is that like how many times your heart has to beat in a minute depends on your size. So like an elephant's heart beats a lot slower than a mouse's heart because it's uh, more skin versus mass and density. So all across the board from a mouse to humans to elephants, we have very different amount of heartbeats within a minute and also within a year. But in a mystery that they don't know why, every living being beats about the exact same amount of heartbeats in a lifetime. So if your heart beats slower, you're going to live longer. If your heart beats faster, you're going to live shorter. Isn't that wild? (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. And so what he's talking about evolutionary with humans is the only species or being that doesn't that surpasses that are humans because we reach that limit of heartbeats at the age of 25. And before modern society, that was about how long we lived. And so I've just been fascinated thinking about this of like, we have created technology that has fought off death, but our psychology has not evolved enough to know how to handle looking at each other while we're dying. Wow. That like, 
at 25, like 23, 25 is when our bodies start breaking down. We were meant to see each other in our prime, in our growth, and then and then be gone. And now we're creating technology. And we're keeping ourselves around. And we, we weren't meant to have like creaky knees and, you know, all these medical problems. And I keep thinking about all these medical problems that we have as we get older and also how we look like we're dying and we're aging that like evolutionarily speaking and psychologically, we, we weren't meant for this. <laughs> And we created technology faster than we could evolve to understand it. Ever since I read that, I keep looking at people's faces and their wrinkles and their aging and thinking, I was never meant to see this on you. Like, you were never meant to look like this. (laughs) At least, like, evolutionarily at the beginning. Yeah, like, evolutionarily, like, we weren't meant to die slowly. And that's literally what starts happening at 25. We just start dying slowly. Mm. And we see how long technology can keep us around in this like arrested state of death. (laughs) In the very last line of this curatorial statement is kind of the heart of this is it's about relationship. And that's something that you and I talk about a lot and think about a lot Mm -hmm. in, in different ways. And, you know, I'm making the bold statement that our freedom is actually dependent on one another. And if in the first series we're talking about who decides who has freedom and this desire that we all have freedom, then the second series are saying, but yet we literally can't have freedom unless we allow each other freedom. And I really, in my like modern ideals of who I am, I want to say like, you can't take away my freedom. I'm the only one that can decide my freedom. Um, I get to be free if I want to be free. But the reality is actually that's not true. That like my freedom is really dependent on you and my relationship with you and the relationship I have with people around me. And so relationship becomes a huge thing in this definition of freedom. And then, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the last conversation with Razia, but then in that conversation is you have to talk about who has more power in that relationship. So then your freedom is not only dependent on the relationship, but also the relationship of power to that freedom. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking we're not free till we're all free. That's a very big statement, but I think it's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we talked about we've talked about before how white supremacy hurts white people as well as everybody else, mm-hmm. and that I think in a, in the current society, if we were to think who thinks they're really free and like liberated, it would be people mm-hmm. at the top who don't feel people above them pr- oppressing them in any way. But I think there's still with white supremacy culture and like patriarchy, there are still ways that even people at the top are not really free, mm-hmm. even though they think they're free. And I think that's, and that they're just, that they just are the, under the illusion that they are free. Mm-hmm. And, but they don't, they don't realize that the whole system has to completely change and like be, be freed without oppression for everybody to really be free. But I also think we don't want to know what true freedom is. I think people are afraid of real freedom. Because it's terrifying. It's way easier. I mean, I've noticed this in my own, just a little bit of disclosure in my own life of I've lived a pretty hard life where I've had to hustle most of my life. And I've gotten into a place in my life in the last three or four years where I, you know, I've gone through two grad schools. I've gotten financial, uh, way I can financially support myself. I'm a little more comfortable. 
Um, and also I've done like 10 years of therapy. And so I've able to process through a lot of the trauma that I went through and I'm able to have like healthy relationships now. And it feels like most of my life, I was just surviving, 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 putting out fires constantly, family fires, like trauma fires, like all these things. And now there's no fires to put out. And so I would think that I would be like happy and I have more freedom to like decide what do I want to do with my life instead of just responding to what everyone needs for me. And actually it's had the reverse effect. I've been like, had started to have anxiety for the first time in my life and fear of the future. And I was like talking about this with my therapist and just talking, she was talking about how like, well, this is the first time in your life you've had to make a decision. And I was like, what do you mean? I've been making decisions my whole life. She's like, no, you've been making decisions about how to survive. Like you don't have to yeah. think about what school you want your kid to go to because you don't have the money or the time to think about it. She's going to the first public school there is or you're homeschooling her because she can't, you know, all these things that have happened. And that's on a really personal level. I've experienced some kind of economic freedom just from money for the first time in my life. And there's a small part of me that misses not having to bear the weight of deciding the future of Ava because it's already been decided. I just need to make the best of a bad situation. Yeah. I mean, I feel that's, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it, it makes me think of like being in the studio. Mm -hmm. I think for me personally, and I think for a lot of artists, it's like, it's where we can truly be free. And that's why at first it can be so like debilitating to like push through yeah. the fact that you are in a space that is confronting the unknown, confronting what you don't know, what's mm -hmm. going to happen, what's going to be made. And you have to confront your deepest parts of yourself that you don't ever want to look at because you're mm -hmm. doing whatever else with your life. And, and I think that's like the bravery of the artist. And I think plenty of other people do this in their lives too. But I think just as one example, the studio makes you confront and have to make real, like, I think, I think that's a good way of putting it. Like you're making a choice. Mm -hmm. Like you have the chance to make some real choices and that can be really scary. Yeah. And like the blank canvas of all the possibilities, because <laughs> then there's also the fear. If I don't have a lot of choices, then I never have to confront the fear of whether or not I'm good enough. Ugh. I can, I can live in the story that the world will never know if I am an amazing, whatever artist, mother, who knows, because life has been stacked against me. I'm just trying to survive the thing that I know that I'm good at. Like I've defined myself most of my life as I like, I know that I am an excellent survivor. I am resilient, throw anything at me. And that's why I define myself a lot by creativity because I'm highly creative. I can get through any problem. And I've defined myself that way because problems have been constantly been thrown at me. But now all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, how do I, now I have to confront the fact of, can I create something that is, that can do something meaningful in the world if I, if I'm not restrained. And that's way more terrifying because I have to be confronted with this question of, am I actually good enough? Because nobody's stopping me now. And you're facing that a little bit, getting me to move to LA. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's much easier. I mean, it just makes me think of that Teddy Roosevelt quote, which mm -hmm. is like about the man in the arena. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to be on the outside and yeah. think that could be me or I could do better or like, you know, whatever. But even if you fail in the arena, it's better than being someone on the outside is kind of yeah. the, the gist of the quote. And I'm feeling that that pressure right now. I'm like gearing up. I'm putting my boxing gloves on a little bit and being like, yeah. well, I'm going to step in. I'm going to do it. There's nothing <laughs> holding you gonna back. Happen. You <laughs> right. have complete freedom to do what right. you need to do to find out if you actually can make it as an artist in LA. Yeah. And there's no excuses anymore. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go to interloper, interloper.com and check out the archive of this show. This land is your land. Which may or may not have anything to do with all the co- things that we just <laughs> talked about. But hey, it was fun having this conversation. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. Yeah. But yeah, it was so great working with Deja and Elisheba. We hope you'll follow mm-hmm. them on Instagram. Keep up with their work. They're both doing amazing stuff. So keep up with them. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast, where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and conversation. Finally, we release the podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram at interloper underscore unlicensed to find out what's next. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by Shenpike. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden and Tiffany Danielle Elliott. The song you heard on the podcast today is Lofi en la Fila de la Totiria by Palma Sur. Thank you.